0: Welcome to AZMCAST, the Competitive Emergency Medicine Podcast. Our goal on AZMCAST is to demonstrate the knowledge, skills, and the approach to help you, the listener, be a top-notch emergency provider. Our panel of emergency specialists will go head-to-head as they navigate a case from the ring down to the workup to the dispo. Panelists will be awarded points for their quick wit, prioritization of tasks, and their clinical application of evidence-based medicine. However, they will lose points for weak arguments that rely on experience-based medicine and the use of banned, unhelpful jargon like gestalt or high index of suspicion, or just because I feel like it. The panelists with the most points at the end of each episode will have free reign during the art of EM to rant about whatever aspect of EM is near and dear to their hearts at that given moment. We encourage you, the listener, to pause the podcast at each segment and consider your own approach before going on with the discussion. And our hope is that you will develop a prioritized, evidence-based approach to emergency medicine that will carry you into your next shift. And now, on today's episode, we present for your edutainment, The Ringdown. During the ring down, points will be awarded for an appropriately focused history and physical with prioritized questions and evidence-based medicine backing. Points will be deducted for weak arguments or missing important elements. So this is a 73-year-old female coming in by EMS with abdominal pain. But before we get started uh, with the case, let's introduce our panel and give you, the listener, a chance to put yourself in their shoes and consider how you will prepare for such a case. So Dr. Jenny Plitt is a Clinical Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine and a Simulation Specialist. Welcome, Jenny.
1: Hey, Aaron. Glad to be back.
0: Uh, Dr. Elaine situ Lucas is an Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine here at the U of A as well and is the Director of Ultrasound Education. Hi, Elaine.
2: Hi, Aaron. Thanks for having me.
0: And lastly, Dr. Brian Drummond is a clinical associate professor of emergency medicine here at the U of A and the only person who never declines my friend requests for this podcast. Hi, Brian.
3: Hi, Aaron. I'm watching Elon Musk on Battery Day in the background. This is awesome.
0: (laughs) All right. So the case again is a 73-year-old female coming in by EMS with abdominal pain. The vital signs are a temperature of 37.4, heart rate of 62, blood pressure of 173 over 103, respiratory rate of 20, fatting 94% on room air. Uh, So Jenny, I'm going to ask you if you get this page out as you're working through a regular shift, what's going through your mind? What's in your high risk differentials and what are your top considerations?
1: Well, the first thing I think with this patient is this is an old person with abdominal pain and hypertension, so there's a lot of really bad things to consider uh, without knowing more. And I always think of one of my very esteemed attendings when I was a resident, Dr. Berkman, who once told me, older people are out to F you. So often their exams can be misleading and less impressive than someone who's younger, and that's pretty well documented in the literature. But right off the bat with this patient, and um, in this hypertensive elderly patient, I immediately, I think about her aorta. Is this a triple A or a dissection? Um, I want to do a good jam- exam, checking her pulses, looking for any signs of limb ischemia. Is it diffuse pain out of proportion to exam? Maybe she's got a history of AFib, which would point me towards mesenteric ischemia. Is she distended and vomiting? And then I'm thinking bowel obstruction. Um, And then, of course, your classic belly pain things, appendicitis, cholecystitis, diverticulitis, nephrolithiasis, Um, though usually those are a little bit more localizing and focal if it's not um, diffuse pain. And then even I always think about an MI, especially if they're having epigastric pain. This is an elderly female. um, So this is going to be the the patient that presents with an atypical presentation for something like acute coronary syndrome.
0: Um, Elaine, if you actually get uh, this call while you're on shift, um, how are you getting prepared for this? Is there anything that jumps off on this that makes you worried? Are you going to go see your other patients that are in the waiting room first? Uh, Are you going to go to the cafeteria and grab a sandwich? What are you going to do in response to this page out? And if you're worried, what are you going to do to get prepared?
2: So, I'll try to get to the room as soon as I can. Um, first thing about this page out, there are a couple of things on the vital signs that worry me. There's a little bit of cognitive dissonance in terms of heart rate of 62, blood pressure of 175 over 103. This person um, it may be vomiting, or if she's in pain, you're going to expect the heart rate to be higher than that. So, something's not making sense. So, um, I'd like to be at bedside when she comes in. I want to prepare for ABCs, even though if the Airway stuff isn't um, in the room I want it pretty close by. I want the EKG machine closed just like Jenny was saying worrying about um, ACS and of course the bedside ultrasound you got to get it to the bedside because you want to look at um, the aorta for dissection, triple A and also um, potentially SBO um, and the O2 set is a little bit borderline. So um, 94% did she aspirate I'd like to have the suction ready and potentially some supplemental O's.
0: okay. Brian, bring us back down to reality, uh, if I can tear you away from Elon Musk and his amazing batteries. Uh, what are you doing in reality uh, in response to this page out? And I wait with bated breath.
3: Well, like with any page out, Aaron, it's really what does this mean to the rest of the department and where am I at? So uh, to be honest, if I'm in the middle of Dakota, I'm probably not looking at a page out. If I'm doing a procedure, I'm probably not looking at this page out. If I'm sitting on my butt just watching Elon Musk, I probably will go to the page out because it sounds more interesting than Elon. Well, that could be hard to debate. But I would say that it really you have to take all these page outs. What is the most acute process you need to work on in your department? And that should be your number one priority. If this is the, a big problem, then you should go to it or maybe things are okay and you don't know if this is going to be your big problem. Maybe you're just going to eyeball it within five minutes of arrival. I think a problem that we sometimes get into is going to the room and sitting there and waiting and waiting and waiting. And guess what? The arrival time isn't as uh, expected and now your department suffers, your other patients suffer. Maybe there's other sick patients you haven't gotten to and taken a look at. So, um, I try to get to ring downs, but to be honest, I don't get to all of them. And one of the things uh, I really look for is a nurse to grab me by the ear and say, doc, get over here. And that's probably will be good enough.
0: I have to agree that waiting in an empty room for a patient, unless their build is unstable, is just a way to avoid seeing the other patients that are still waiting for you. Uh, So let me pose this to the group real quick. I'll ask you, how is this going to be different if this patient were actually hypotensive uh, when, uh, they were pitching the vital signs instead of hypertensive.
1: I think with the hypoten- if they were hypotensive, I'd be a lot more concerned about something like AAA. I'd be in the room, um, pretty quickly with my ultrasound machine, like Elaine said, doing a fast exam, looking at the aorta. And I'd also be concerned about sepsis, um, from any cause in, in the abdomen, api, diverticulitis, pylo, something like that. Um, I, I, I kind of agree with Brian. Like if, if I got a page out on this patient, unless I knew that this patient looked uncomfortable, um, or, you know, there was something to point me towards this patient being unstable, like that they were hypotensive. I probably wouldn't rush to this room unless, you know, the nurse is calling me and saying, hey, this patient doesn't look good and they're hypertensive. And then it, it puts some other things in my differential. There's also
2: an element of alarm fatigue. We get page outs for a lot of things these days. Someone coming back from triage with chest pain, it's like chest pain alert. Um, and so it has to be something that is going to be very attention grabbing for me to even, you know, potentially meet EMS at the the door where they're coming in.
0: Uh, what if this patient were febrile?
3: Well, I, I think that the vital signs that they currently have, this patient even could go to triage and and we're being realistic, right? This is a patient who will either sit out the radio room in RER or maybe get sent to triage. If they're sitting there talking and looking okay and, maybe knitting a sweater in their lap, but we don't know, right? So mm-hmm. we don't know what's going to happen. If they're febrile, I think, you know, to me, it's infection or environmental exposure. Those would be the top two things I would think of. Tox would be um, a third thing down. But, you know, you don't get a lot of things otherwise. Um, you know, vascular emergency, like a AAA, shouldn't necessarily increase your temperature. So then if they're hypotensive and febrile, I think that fusion thought would be more of an infection uh, ideology or a severe dehydration and heat exposure. You know, as we've had one of the hottest summers in Tucson on record, um, there's a lot of people who are environmentally exposed. And so I think we also use the term febrile wrong. We should say temperature elevation because febrile is a connotation of, um, infection. So staying broad is always good with these, but, uh, I think it adds a little bit more to the case than if they had a normal temperature.
0: We'll call it hyperpyrexia if that makes you uh, happier for all of the uh, British colleagues out there. So you say we don't know what this patient looks like until they get there. Well, she's here and she arrives sitting upright. She's looking at you and she's puking. Um, Top three things that need to happen for you right away.
2: I wanna make sure that she's protecting her airway, that she can phonate, she can speak with me, um, that she doesn't have any signs of aspiration, respiratory distress, because I'm gonna have to start prepping my airway stuff. I definitely want IV access and I want it well, first I really want a new set of vitals because I'm a little bit wary of EMS vital signs sometimes that BP could be while she was vomiting and she's actually hypotensive. I need to act upon that. Does she need fluid resuscitation immediately? Um, I want to finger stick blood glucose. A lot of times oral boards, um, they don't give you blood glucose and that's an important element that we have to remember to ask for. So definitely a finger stick. Hopefully EMS already has that. And um, hang a fluid bolus.
0: I asked for three. You gave me five. You get a couple <laughs> points back for those extra two. So, uh, so
2: Jenny, <laughs> oh, <no. laughs>
0: uh, uh, my favorite question, again, I like to keep things pretty simple. You're going to ask them your ample history. Uh, this patient has uh, uh, hypertension, coronary artery disease, fibromyalgia, depression, and history of diverticulitis. Uh, She's had a coli. She's had a hysterectomy. She had a hemicolectomy for diverticulitis and has had three stents. She's on metoprolol, aspirin, plavix, gabapentin, sertraline, and she's allergic to sulfa. Uh, She has abdominal pain for the last 24 hours, although it's really been intermittent for the past week. Non-bloody, non-bilious emesis, no diarrhea, no fever. So if she's puking and you're trying to get some high-yield information in between vomits, what are three really important questions you need to get out of this patient? Because she really only has the patience to answer you three times.
1: I'd say number one, what is your code status? Um, I always want to know that, especially... Uh, uh, Jenny's Jenny's
0: already counting her out.
1: (laughs) I kind of want to know what events were leading up to this. What was she doing when her pain started? Um, And then, yeah. And then if um, she could really describe in detail her pain, how, where it is, how does it feel? Is it changing? Is it migrating? Um, You know what
3: I would do? To be honest, uh, I would buy more time. I would give this patient, I'd rip off some alcohol pads and have her sniff those and do a quick nausea treatment before the IV goes in so I can ask a fourth and fifth question like Elaine and Jenny wanted to. Brian, are you just just pulling this out of your hat? Absolutely not. There's actually some uh, evidence that shows uh, sniffing alcohol pads can provide some uh, temporary relief for nausea and vomiting. Uh, usually only lasts maybe 10 minutes, um, but it's, it's a quick temporizer until you're trying to get some anti-nausea medication. Great in triage, if you're ever in triage with a patient or they're actively puking in front of you. Does it work in everyone? No. Uh, do these patients get drunk? No. Um, if it doesn't work, it costs a couple alcohol pads. So to me, that's a win-win-win.
0: surprisingly effective studied in the anesthesia literature studied in the emergency medicine literature you hold some alcohol under their nose and it actually can get them to stop vomiting Uh, so if you've never tried that before you absolutely could so kudos to brian Mm -hmm. for suggesting something that is not just practical not just gadgety but evidence-based thank you brian so brian since you're in there and you got her to stop throwing up Uh, you ask her the rest of your questions. She says that this is just an all over pain. It hurts everywhere. Uh, She's uh, just uh, woke up from sleep having it feel that much worse, um, but has been having this intermittent, dull, achy pain for the past week. Any other questions you'd like to pile on for this lady now that we use Brian's alcohol pads to get her Mm -hmm. to stop vomiting?
3: Uh, and actually, the one question I would ask her would be, um, does she feel distended? So it's a
0: good thing you asked that because she's a fairly obese uh, woman. And um, she uh, it's very difficult to tell if she's actually distended. Uh, but she says she does. She f- says she feels very, the word she uses is poochy. Um, and she feels that for certain. She has over increasingly more for the past week.
3: Well, and I think that's an important question I like to ask patients with abdominal pain because I think it was in the, um, I may be quoting the wrong literature, but the JAMA clinical series, they talked about the highest likelihood ratio uh, for small bowel obstruction in a lady with had lots of surgeries is actually um, distension, sensation of distension or feeling distended. So that is a uh, question I I will ask. I don't ask, is your pen, is your pen? A nine out of 10, you know, tell me on a pain scale. I think those are dumb questions. So um, I'm not asking her that question. Some distension. You've already given me a bunch of GI bleed components. I think that's another important thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in terms of where I go from here, it would be on to the physical exam.
2: I don't really ask that many questions up front, especially for waiting for stuff as nursing is putting her on the monitor as nursing is, or the checks are putting IVs in. I just do my own physical exam and also throw a probe on it. If I'm worried about AAA and dissection, I'm not going to like ask questions about how do you feel like does this abdominal pain radiate to your back? That's really not neither sensitive nor specific. So I'm going to take a look with my own eyes, and within you know a couple of minutes, I can tell you whether or not she has a AAA, um, and I can tell you in a couple of minutes whether I can potentially see a dissection in her in her aortic arch.
0: Right. So Elaine, walk me through uh, your physical exam. Are you going straight for the belly on her? And if so, what are you, what are you doing to examine her?
2: So um, I will start with the belly first. And just like Brian was saying, see if she's distended. I think it's hard to tell if the patient is obese, um, if she, whether or not she has rebound or whether or not she has bowel sounds. I percuss if she's tympanitic, if I can. Um, does she have any bounding masses if you feel midline? Um, does she have borborygmy, maybe for a partial obstruction?
3: Oh my gosh, seriously (laughs) Elaine, are you doing
2: all of this? There's no way you're percussing out
3: her liver and spleen. Come on, borborygmy? Oh Lord.
2: Just over her most distended... You don't do that on every abdominal exam? No, not on, not for the liver or the spleen, but just to see if it it sounds hollow.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Elaine, I'm going to watch the next time we work together. I'm going to go watch you examine someone's abdomen. And if I find that you're not percussing them, I'm going to come back and take off points the next time you're on the show. So, okay. <laughs>
2: sometimes I, The <laughs> residents will see that I percuss sometimes.
0: I will give Elaine points. She says she percusses. I believe her. I am impressed. I lost. Not on, uh,
2: all, not on all belly painters. Yeah. But for but belly on this painters, one? Okay. Yep. All right.
0: So uh, when you do your exam... You have an obese female who appears uncomfortable. She's diaphoretic, but no rash. Uh, she, her heart is regular rate and rhythm, uh, no murmurs, two-plus distal pulses, equal breath sounds bilaterally. She's a little bit tachypneic uh, because she uh, appears in pain. Her abdomen is soft. It's tender diffusely, no rebound. Uh, you can't hear bowel sounds, uh, and um, it's difficult to see if she's distended, but there's certainly no fluid wave. So- I'll ask you for a patient like this, um, what does it mean to you uh, that you can't hear bowel sounds in an obese patient in the emergency department?
2: Nothing. That's
3: assuming you, I I am listening for bowel sounds, Aaron.
0: That's assuming Brian brought his stethoscope to work
3: I haven't had my stethoscope since COVID started.
0: Who's doing a rectal exam on this patient?
3: the more important exam, Aaron, is definitely a bimanual exam in the hysterectomy obese woman. I think it's the only thing that a (laughs) resident- All right,
0: all right, all right. (laughs) Brian gets muted when he starts to go off on his soapboxes. And more than anything, Mm -hmm. it's just fun to actually be able to mute Brian when he goes off on his soapboxes. So thank you for that, Brian. Um, All right. So we're down to uh, a history and a physical, which we try to tell everybody, especially when we're working with some of the newer interns or off-service residents, you have a chief complaint, your history and your physical pairs down your differential before you even get to that point. So Elaine, top three diagnoses based off of uh, your history and physical for this patient.
2: I would say SBO definitely up there because of the bowel sounds um, that aren't being heard. Um, and still haven't necessarily ruled out AAA or dissection. Those are the scary things I really want to rule out
0: first. Great. Jenny, top three, what do you think's going on?
1: Well, according to the Journal of Emergency Medicine in an article published by Long et al., <laughs> the most reliable findings on your HNP for SBO are prior surgeries of which she's had many, a history of constipation, which I'm not sure we asked her, But abdominal, abnormal bowel sounds, which this patient has, and abdominal distension, hard to say. So I'm going to go with SBO, volvulus, and um, constipation. All
0: right. (laughs) Jenny's sucking up with the evidence-based medicine, but I'll take it. I'll allow it. Brian, top three. What do you think's going on with this lady?
3: Um, I would I would put bowel obstruction in my top three, and I'm going to say broad, so I'm not going to say volvulus or small bowel or large bowel because she's an older lady. Um, she could have any of those with her complicated belly. The second one I would probably put in is mesenteric ischemia, and I'm not going to specify those four types. And the third one, because common things are common, I'm going to put appendicitis because she hasn't had her appendix out, and um, 24 hours of continuous pain would fit that bill as well.
0: Yep, she's still got a couple organs left that need to be donated to the pathologist. So, all right, with a score of uh, Dr. c C2 Lacasse and Dr. Plitt nodded at 15, but Dr. Drummond uh, eked out in the lead with 16, we are gonna move on to the workup. During the workup, points will be awarded for prioritization of interventions backed by evidence-based medicine. Points will be deducted for poorly defensible workups or treatments. So as a quick recap of this patient, uh, this is a 73-year-old female coming in by EMS with abdominal pain for 24 hours after having an intermittent abdominal pain for the past week. Uh, the pain was worse yesterday. She woke up with non-bloody, non-bilious emesis. She's had no diarrhea and no fever. She has a history of hypertension, coronary artery disease, fibromyalgia, depression, and diverticulitis. She has a surgical history of a coli, a hysterectomy, a hemicolectomy, and three stents. She's on metoprolol, aspirin, plavix, gabapentin, and sertraline. Her allergies are to sulfa, and her review of systems don't matter, and they never will for the rest of your life. Their physical exam shows a temperature of 37.4, a heart rate of 62, blood pressure of 175 over 103, respiratory rate of 20, and a SAT of 94% on room air. She's an obese female who's uncomfortable and diaphoretic with no rash. Uh, Her uh, HENT is normal. Cardiovascular exam is normal with a normal rate and rhythm. Respiratory exam shows tachypnea, but equal breath sounds. Her abdomen is soft, tender diffusely, no rebound, no bowel sounds heard, uh, and a normal rectal tone without blood, should you care to check one. She has no edema, and she is alert and oriented with a non-focal exam. Um, So Elaine, who here is ordering the CAT scan before they get anything else with this patient?
1: Me. Me.
0: Me. Who who here is ordering the CAT scan when they got the ring down? (laughs) Me. (laughs) Elderly patients with abdominal pain, the risk of radiation in them, much lower than in younger patients. The risk of them having some kind of evil in their abdomen uh, that needs surgery or needs antibiotics, much, much higher. Elderly patients uh, are out to get you.
1: I guess before I get the CAT scan, I am doing a bedside ultrasound really to look at the aorta. I don't know if I'm going to be able to see anything in this obese female, but I'd be ordering the CAT scan at the same time. So. All
0: right. So, Elaine, I'm going to set put this up on a T for you. Uh, so, you've got your ultrasound, and you're looking at this old lady with abdominal pain. What are you looking at first? Are you just going to coat roll her in uh, ultrasound jelly and then just start scanning a- around until you find something? Or what's your kind of methodical way to go through this?
2: First, I'm going to look at her aorta. I want to make sure that she doesn't have a triple A. Um, the other thing is looking to see if there's a flap, a dissection flap. I recently learned this, but aortic dissection occurs at... Um, three times greater number than a ruptured triple A. So I didn't know that, but um, those are things that you can look at immediately by just putting a strip of gel down the patient's belly, running the curvilinear probe all the way down and just eyeballing it. And another thing is um, if we're worried about SBO, which we are, you can take a look for SBO with ultrasound. In 2018, Gottlieb et al. published a systematic review on um, analyzing several studies um, looking at ultrasound and SBO. And the sensitivity and specificities were both over 90s. So it is much better than x-ray. I would say bedside um, x-ray, throw that crap out. Um, you can get it to appease your surgeon if you want to, um, and you can get it to appease other people, but as an evidence-based um, medicine, emergency medicine doctor, screw it. Um, if you want to jump to CT scan, great, uh, because that's where you're going to find you know, your transition point,
1: um, but bedside ultrasound and then CT scan. At Dr. Uh, Cytula Cass's ultrasounds are going to be a lot better than my ultrasounds and that most of the studies have shown that it's very operator dependent, even though it is much better than x-rays. Um, so usually I'm starting with an x-ray if I'm worried about the patient while I'm ordering the CT scan and in the, the chance that that might come back first. And if it shows uh, signs of obstruction, I can call surgery, who's still usually going to want the CT scan anyways to better locate any transition points or what the cause of the obstruction is. But ultrasound um, is a lot better than x-ray. It's just a little operator dependent. And I personally have never been able to identify a small bowel obstruction on my ultrasounds. (laughs) You will, Jenny. You will. One day.
3: I agree with Elaine on this big time. I think uh, x-rays are useless in this patient, and um, but I would disagree in terms of I would do a fast first because if I get free fluid, that's probably going to be easier for me to see if I was not as good uh, with the ultrasound because I'm used to doing a fast. Sometimes an obese person to see that aorta or if they have an obstruction you're going to have to push through a lot of gas and adipose tissue. And I think that's one of the tips that I find people do very light aorta ultrasounds. You're going to dig in with your hand and full body weight and milk the intestines and fat and pannus and scar tissue away until you see vertebral body. When you can see vertebral body, you know the aorta is in front of that. And if you can't see the aorta, then stop and just go on to your next ultrasound thing or image them if you're worried. But that is like, that's how I do my aorta ultrasounds. And you, it sucks. Yes, it hurts the patient, but you're going to have to look. But if they have a big gas ball, you may not see stuff in the abdomen. I have seen lots of bowel obstructions, and I actually uh, use ultrasound for bowel obstruction diagnosis. My tip would be start on the left side of the belly and work across to the right. Most commonly, you'll see the bowel obstruction because the small intestine goes from the left side to the right. What you're going to look for is some um, dilated loops of bowel, and you'll know they're dilated because normally you don't see bowel at all. And then you see this um, basically movement back and forth of this fluid, almost like your squish sign in an abscess. It kind of is going back, and you're like, oh, look, some semi uh, or circularis, semi or whatever those intestinal things are
1: uh, in the small
3: intestine. Yeah, those things. (laughs)
0: <laughs> points to a land for knowing what those things are
3: but you'll see you'll see that on your ultrasound so I think that's a big key but I would start with a fast ultrasound I then go to an aorta and while that's happening I'm probably going to call the CT scan you can't get the general surgeon to see someone for a small bowel obstruction based on an ultrasound though that just doesn't happen they are not there yet by five ten years at least
0: So just for the record, Brian, uh, when he's got an obese patient, uh, just ties a rope to his ankles and dives into the umbilicus with the ultrasound probe. Absolutely. So so I'll ask real quick the group, uh, when is there a time where you think that a plain view x-ray would be helpful in evaluating elderly abdominal pain?
3: Iron injury. I think
1: it's not... I think only if, if CT is um, unavailable or if you're not going to get a CT scan in a timely manner um, and you can get a quick bedside upright x-ray, you know, it's not very sensitive. The sensitivity ranges are somewhere between 30% in some studies and up to 90% in other studies. So it's certainly I would never rule out a bowel obstruction with an x-ray. But I think if you're really behind on getting CTs or unable to, it's an option to start um, because if it were positive, I'd definitely call my surgeon off of that.
2: At best, the specificity for the abdominal x-ray is in the 80s, but that's if you're only having faculty members in radiology reading them. So if it's positive, then great. Just like Jenny was saying, I would get on the phone with um, the surgeons and say, hey, She's going to get a CT, but I'm letting you know, I want you to come and see the patient now.
0: That's usually what I've found as well. I will, I do find that if you get free air, that that kind of makes people move a little bit faster. So if you're, it sounds like whether you're going to do plain films or ultrasound, ultrasound might make us feel better about, we know what it is, but surgeons at this point still want a CAT scan to figure out what's going on. All right, so we've kind of beaten imaging to death here. Um, If you uh, do her bedside ultrasound, what you're going to find on this uh, nice lady is a normal aorta, a normal fast exam, and an edematous bowel without any peristalsis seen in the left upper quadrant. Um, So at this point, uh, we're uh, the nurses got, uh, and the techs have your IV. They've got blood. They've got everything else that you want at your disposal. What else are we getting for this patient to work them up?
3: I mean, realistically, you're going to get screening in abdominal labs. You know, we still have it. Pancreatitis is really bad in old patients, so a lipase I think is um, one that you're going to get. You're going to get your CBC because you don't know if she's anemic and a white count may help if she's got some intra-abdominal abscess that's been brewing, Um, you know, but really none of that's going to change a lot of what you're going to do. You're going to get a chemistry panel because CT is going to bitch at you if you don't get a chemistry to look at her GFR. But to be honest, if you want to CT this person to say they're a trauma, or you want to do their aorta and get it done, to sign it and be done, it doesn't really matter at that point. But we're just being honest here, Aaron. I know you want to cut me off and mute me. <laughs> oh,
0: Brian's gonna push this old lady out of bed and call her a ground level fall, so she can be a trauma activation and get that <laughs> you know, CT done.
3: It's a great thing for borders. You make She'll be no, a trauma no be rolling.
0: Um, so, uh, and, and Brian, I will, I will give you a couple extra points for skirting the line, uh, and saying screening abdominal labs. They are not basic labs, which oh. is a no, no on this program. Uh, they are screening labs and they are screening labs, honestly, preoperative screening labs in case you need to go to the OR. So
3: yeah, and um, I would not get coags with that because coags, unless I had a liver failure history are not. Uh, routine labs needed, nor are they needed for us in the emergency room, unless you're worried about liver failure in this patient. I would get a lactate for mesenteric ischemia, but you can also look at the bicarb and the anion gap uh, for that as well. If you felt she was severely sick, um, a venous gas is not unreasonable to get in these patients. Her glucose was okay, so you're not thinking this is an elderly DKA, but that's Uh, Also in the realm, especially with some of their meds, they can be non-hyperglycemic DKs too. So other abdominal pain thing to think
0: about. Jenny, how are you intervening on this nice lady? What are you doing to try to get her feeling better? What are you doing to try to resuscitate her? Uh, What are we actually giving as far as meds, fluids, pain control, antibiotics, and the like?
1: So um, she doesn't appear to me to be hemodynamically unstable, but of course I'm getting my IVs. I would give her an IV fluid bolus. Um, I'd probably just give her a liter of LR. I think if we're thinking SBO, which it sounds like this patient is, that hydration is a really key point in management. I'd be giving her analgesics. Um, I'd probably be giving her antimedics like morphine and Zofran. Um, She doesn't have a fever. On our exam from uh, you know what we can get from it 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 doesn't seem that she has peritoneal signs so I don't think she needs antibiotics right away and then um, you know I've already ordered my imaging I'd be talking with with the surgeon and the other question is does this patient need an NG tube and there's a lot of controversial literature out there about that Um, so I would say this patient she's vomiting she looks really uncomfortable Um, possibly distended. Those are the patients that I would put an NG tube in, but without those signs, there's actually um, studies that have shown that it can increase your length of stay in the hospital by two days and doesn't actually decrease your rates of surgery or bowel ischemia. So um, you could also just talk with your surgeon and discuss if you want to use an NG tube in this patient, but with given her symptoms, I probably would. Uh, And there's
0: plain NG tube.
2: Um, There are studies out there that are conflicting, but this group out of Ontario, um, what's his name? Beeman et al., Um, he does a lot of studies on SBOs. And um, and one of the things is non-op management actually works for 70 to 90% of patients with SBOs. And in patients who are elderly, they kind of look at their frailty index, how, how's their ability to recover from an abdominal surgery. So I think that conservative management, putting in an NG tube at the very beginning is okay. And usually there's a 72 hour cap. And after 72 hours, if they have persistent copious output, no, res- no resolution of abdominal pain, um, Um, That's when they usually talk about the OR.
0: Ryan, NG tube?
3: I wouldn't put an NG tube in unless I had a CT scan or an endotracheal tube in place.
0: Her labs are back. Her white count is 19.3, H&H of 12.3 and 40.5, and platelets of 315 with a neutrophil predominance. Uh, She has uh, mild hyponatremia, sodium 132, potassium 3.4. Her bicarb is 18 uh her BUN creatinine is 40 and 2.6 and her uh, glucose is 175 um, she has a lactate of 4.2 and a pH of 7.22 so CT comes together and they say I want to I I'm not able to give her contrast you want to do a non-contrasted study
3: I think it depends on really what your concern was or what you were looking for I mean you you can see a lot with a non-contrast especially in an obese patient um and sometimes we have to play you know the art of medicine is i know that i can get a non-con faster than a contrast ct so if radiology is going to fight me tooth and nail i may just non-con her to get some image to be able to go from there and then if i need to i can always go back and put contrast in this lady is it the most efficient thing no but at the same time to run a contrast study takes a lot longer than a non-contrast in terms of setup and for radiology tech. So they may push that down the road, especially if you had multiple CTs uh, waiting. So if you, if they're going to do the CT next and they're okay doing contrast, if you say do it, I would do it because you haven't ruled out the vascular components. If they are pushing you and just being a total pain in the ass and passive aggressive, which that's happened, then just non-con them and go back. And if you need to get contrast, you can get the contrast in later.
0: All right. So we get that non-contrasted CT and you get dilated loops of edematous bowel with questionable transition point in the left upper quadrant. No free air, uh, but the mesentery seems a little shaggy around that left upper quadrant. Um, so I'll go from top to bottom uh, uh, Elaine, Brian, and Jenny, uh, where to uh, for the dispo for this patient now that we've got their ED workup done?
2: This patient isn't going home. It looks like her vital signs, if we got repeat vital signs, if her vital signs are okay, if she's hemodynamically stable, then I would call surgery and talk to them about either admitting them to the surgical floor or potentially taking her to the OR after the evaluate her.
3: Brian? Yeah, first call is the surgery. She's going to be admitted to either a medicine or surgery team. I I think the issue really is you can't force the surgeon to operate. And if they are concerned for multiple other reasons, even in in this patient with all the other abdominal surgeries, they may try to do a wait and see before they take her immediately to the OR. You don't have a perf, so there isn't an immediate need. Um, So at this point, if they want to watch for a day or two and see how she evolves, it's not unreasonable. So surgery first discuss with them and then make a decision on uh, the next service or uh, ICU status. I'd probably put her in, she's not going to meet ICU criteria right now. So she's probably going to go to the floor.
0: Jenny.
1: I would also put her on the surgery floor um, and I would, yeah, let them make the decision. I think right now she's not hemodynamically unstable. If she needs to go to surgery, I think a trial non-operative Um, management is reasonable as well. And then they can monitor her for any decline or hemodynamic instability or changes to that. I definitely wouldn't send her to the medicine floor if they try, there's a lot of, there's some evidence showing increased morbidity and mortality when patients are admitted to the medicine service um, for small bowel obstructions as opposed to the surgery service.
0: Um, And some of the literature when I was reviewing for this case was uh, actually saying that for first time small bowel obstructions, they may actually do better if they go to the OR, uh, which we've often tried some conservative therapy. And some of these patients actually have a better overall outcome as far as recurrence and such if they just go to the OR. Is anyone going to be pushing the surgeon that this patient has to go to the OR based off of their presentations right now?
3: I don't don't think you have a set. I mean, she's acidotic probably from some ischemic or not early ischemic changes, but decreased perfusion changes to her gut. Um, You know, if you perfuse her and help her, she could turn around, but, you know, multiple surgeries in the abdomen to go back in a 70 year old, that's, you know, that's not my ball and I'm not going to be the one cutting open the abdomen. And so that's hard for me to push without a hard sign uh, to really go to the floor to push them into that setting. All right.
2: I agree. I think there are a couple of things that may make me be a little bit more forceful, but not to require it, of course. I can't. But um, with the shagginess of her bowel loops on CT scan, it's one of the signs of peritonitis. And also, you're seeing this um, the elevation of lactate. Potentially, that could be poor perfusion, or it could be early signs of ischemia. So it's hard for us to tell right now.
0: All right. So at the end of the workup, uh, we've got a score of uh, Elaine Citulacas at 31, Jenny Plitt at 30, and Brian Drummond at 32. So, Jenny, thank you so much. You were narrowly edged out. It was a tight one today. Oh, man. Uh, Elaine and Brian are going to be moving on to the dispo. During the dispo, points are awarded for a concise and convincing admission call or a clear layperson-level discussion of the discharge instructions. Admission calls should be top-down with the most important information first, writing the fine line between overselling and underselling the admission. Discharge instructions should include shared decision-making, follow-up instructions, and explicit return precautions. And, of course, evidence-based medicine is always welcome. Hi, this is Dr. Surgeon.
3: Hey, how you doing? It's Brian Drummond here in the ER. Uh, I have a patient I wanted you guys to come see. I have a 73-year-old female uh, with a small bowel obstruction um, and history of multiple abdominal surgeries. So she's been having abdominal pain for the last 24 hours intermittently for a week, um, came in here with some vomiting, no signs of a GI bleed. We did a CT scan on her. Um, it shows a transition point in her, uh, left upper quadrant, some thickening of her bowel wall. She has a lactate of four. She has, um, uh, no evidence of perforation at this time. She's been uh, a little bit hypertensive here. We've given her some fluids and pain control. She feels better, but she has had her Uh, colon out from diverticulitis in the past, as well as a hysterectomy and gallbladder removal, um, and has had a reanastomosis, no ostomy uh, noted. So um, they're calling a questionable transition point, uh, but just given the vital sign changes, uh, her age and multiple uh, surgeries, I think you should probably come take a look at her here and let me know if you want to take her to the OR today or if you're going to admit her to your service for serial exams.
1: Uh
0: All right. Um, Do you have an NG tube in her?
3: No, I'm happy to put an NG tube in if you like. Um, Her vomiting seems to be a little bit better with our anti-emetics. And so I'll work with you if if you want it in. We can put it in if that's your practice. If you want us to hold on it, I'm fine doing that. I know patients don't like it, but I have a kinder, gentler way of doing that for
0: them. Well, I mean, I... I don't know. I'm looking at the scans right now. You know what would really help? If you could give her some PO contrast, uh, I think that would really help me to figure out what we're going to do. So why don't you get some PO contrast and re-scan her and then call me back with that result?
3: Sure. What would the PO contrast help you with?
0: I mean, to know if there's actually an obstruction and where it's at.
3: Well, I, I think you can see the obstruction on the CT scan. Um, so the question is whether you think uh, you're just going to let it run its course or whether you want to operate. That's really the question that we have for you. The oral contrast won't add much. I've already talked to the radiologist about that. They have a pretty good read on this one. Plus, uh, that it'd be hard for her to keep that contrast down since she was vomiting. Um, uh, I don't want her to be a more uncomfortable
0: all right. I'll 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 talk to the radiologist about it and I'll come down and see her and I'll let you know what I think.
3: That sounds great. I appreciate it. What was your name? I was going to write it down for time.
0: Uh, Dr. Surgeon.
3: Dr. Surgeon. Okay, okay. cool. First Thank name, so much.
0: first appreciate name, it. the surgeon. The surgeon. The surgeon. Did you go to Ohio-
3: the Ohio State University?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, yeah, it's Welsh. The surgeon. Um, so, Elaine, the surgeon the surgeon came down and uh, evaluated the patient, uh, did want the NG tube, uh, did not want the oral contrasted study on evaluation because he doesn't feel that this patient needs to go to the operating room. So he recommends that you call the medicine service and admit this patient to medicine and surgery will consult. Hi, this is Dr. Hospitalist.
2: Hi, Dr. Hospitalist. This is Elaine C. Tula, in the ED. I'd like to um, admit a patient on to the medicine team with surgery consulting. This is a 73-year-old female with history of multiple abdominal surgeries coming in with SBO, and she is coming with nausea, vomiting, no signs of a GI bleed. White count is 19,000 with left shift. She has a lactate of 4.2, acute kidney injury, creatinine of 2.6. Her CT scan of the abdomen shows SBO with a transition point in the left upper quadrant. We've spoken to the surgery team. They've evaluated her at bedside. They'd like to do serial abdominal exams and not take her to the operating room at this point in time. But given that she has several um, past medical issues, they'd like to have you be primary.
0: Uh, man, I'm not very comfortable with that. Uh, I mean, this sounds like a patient that's got like ischemic bowel or something. So it it looks like the contrast was a, was they didn't do IV contrast. Um, is that, is that because of the kidney issue?
2: They were unable to get the IV contrast, but I think after some resuscitation with the kidney issue, that potentially could be repeated, um, the next day, but yes, her creatinine is 2.6.
0: Okay. So yeah, if you can repeat that study and then just call me back uh, when the study's done, um, then I'll come back and see her. But yeah, I think I'd probably resuscitate her a bit more and then get that other study because she might have dead bowel that needs to go to the OR.
2: So the surgeons already evaluated her, and I don't think that adding a CT scan at this point in time is going to change her disposition at all. She'll still need to come in for serial abdominal exams, and we do have some repeat labs pending for lactate and BMP just to guide her resuscitation, but her vital signs are hemodynamically stable, and she is ready to be admitted.
0: Um. All right. Well, will you call the surgeons and uh, ask them uh, if they, you know, when they plan to come by and when they're going to follow up on these studies and uh, if they can pick up my dry cleaning?
2: Well, I have their pager number right here that I can go ahead and give you, and that way I can be cut out as the middle person and you can have more direct communication with them for better patient care.
0: All right. Fine. I'll admit them.
2: Thank you.
0: So, excellent job. I got to give props to Brian uh, for not just saying, no, I'm not going to do an oral contrasted study. Uh, It's not indicated. We get asked for it all the time. But again, it's, look, I'm happy to do whatever you want to do once the patient is on your service, but I need to keep the ED flowing. And Brian did an expert job of asking, what are you looking for? Not trying to belittle, not trying to uh, undermine, but asking a very simple question. Well, I'm not quite sure what you're looking for because I I think you could get all the information you need if you came and saw this patient. Um, So excellent job with that, Brian. And with the NG tube uh, realizing that, you know, once we admit these patients, they're not in the ED. We don't have to deal with the fallout of whatever we do. Um, so if we, uh, we'll do what the inpatient team wants as long as we get them disposed and Elaine expert job with, again, kind of deferring, uh, not letting them defer for more imaging or more testing and also not being the middle person, uh, for this, we get stuck in that position all the time. Well, why don't you call GI and let me know what they say and then call me back. We are not their admin Uh, to kind of make these decisions, you know, you can talk with them if you'd like, but I'm at the point where this patient needs to be admitted uh, and we're going to end it there. So, so excellent job for both of you. Um, I got to give props to Elaine for her expert use of evidence-based medicine today. And uh, uh, Elaine, you are going to be the winner of today's show. Congratulations. Thank you. I'll be very proud. And so Elaine, you get to enter into the art of medicine to soapbox about anything to your heart's delight uh, that you would like to share with the listeners.
2: Um, first of all, clean the GD ultrasound machines, okay? And plug them in. <laughs> That's the first thing. Um, but just to recap our case, we see lots of belly pain in the ED. Old people you can never trust. Um, they're not as simple as belly pain in a 25-year-old. And if the vital signs don't make sense, um, repeat the vital signs, look at the medication list, try to resolve that conflict in your head. Like, why is this patient not tachycardic? The differential diagnosis is broad, so rule out the big, bad, scary things first and use ultrasound as your friend. So just like Brian was saying, look for free fluid first if that's what you're most comfortable with. Then look at the aorta if you can, look at the heart if you can, um, and take that extra time to narrow down your differential diagnosis to see if you can buy a little extra time before needing to, let's say, call the CT surgeon um, and advocate for your patient. If you want this patient to go to CT, call the CT tech and call them and say, hey, I have a patient I'm very worried about, can you please get them on the table next? And, um, and for oral boards, once again, the tips are, don't forget the point of care glucose, reevaluate the patient and repeat the vital signs.
0: Excellent. So thank you everybody for joining us. Uh, we hope that you all got something out of this and we will see you next episode.